This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Off the ball on News Talk 106 to 108. Everybody up top. Welcome everybody in the middle. Welcome everybody on the ground floor. Wow, we're in the mercantile with a glittering football lineup. We're here to count down to the 25th anniversary of Euro 88, which is uh, kicking off a series of broadcasts right around the country in association with the FAI. We have a load of prizes to give away tonight, including a trip to Wembley for Ireland against England, the new Ireland trip. Well, you can do it after each one if you want. A, a trip to Old Trafford in the last day of the season. I think we have a lot of Liverpool fans in there, so that's... Yeah, I figured that. Loads more as well, and we'll have details on how to win them right across the show. Later on, we're going to talk about white suits, nutcracking, kung fu, and Liverpool in the 1990s with Phil Bob and Jason McAteer. We're going to talk about Barcelona and Aberdeen with Graham Hunter as well. If you want to get involved this evening, you can just tweet us at OffTheBallNT, or you can get us facebook.com forward slash OffTheBall. And if you're here tonight, make sure you uh, try and find contact with Joe Malloy. He's got his hand in the air instead of the shiny red microphone, which would be the thing that will signify him for the rest of the evening. But he's the guy with his hand up at the front there, yeah. Uh, and he is also the man with the golden tickets. Also, for listeners not here, we haven't forgotten about you. We will give you a chance to win a trip to uh, Manchester United against Swansea. That's with thanks to Marathon Sports Travel. And that's all to come in a little while. But first up this evening, please give a proper off-the-ball welcome for John Giles. <laughs> Um, John, we were just talking in the office. This is kind of building up to the uh, commemoration of the 1988 yep. team. Um, are, are we ever going to have a team as good as that 88 team again? Well, if we do, it'll take a long time, uh, Ger. You know, I think at that time, in 88-90, we had the best selection of uh, players that Ireland ever had. Um, and it, it, it compared with anybody, any team in Europe, particularly at that time. Uh, I know Jason's here and Phil's here. And they were part of all that, you know, and it, it was great. We, we had a terrific selection of players, um, like for, for, for in the centre-back position alone, you know, there was Paul McGrath, there was Kevin Moore, there was Phil Babb, there was Mark Lawrence, and there was these, these great players. And, uh, you know, we, I think we had a better selection of players than England at that particular time. That's why I was wondering about if it could ever happen again. Was it just a complete fluke? Was there a series of incidents or, like... What, what was it about that era that produced those great footballers? Well, well, nobody knows. I think it's a look at a draw. I mean, if you look at Brazil, for example, Brazil is a great football country. And in 1970, they had Pelé and all these great players and considered one of the best, well, certainly one of the best teams ever that ever played. But Brazil, Brazil don't produce them every year. And Argentina don't produce them every year. And we're a very, very small country, as we know. Um, so to get those collection of players at that particular time, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a look at a draw that all these players came together. You know, if we, could, if, if, if we could do it so easily, we'd produce them every year. Yeah. Um, and we haven't produced them since. And we may never produce them again. Um, just as, you know, Spain have a terrific uh, uh, collection of players at the moment. Whether they can, can continue to do, do that or not. It's just that the players come together at a particular time. Uh, and that's what happened to us, I think. Is any of it to do with coaching or is it just about, uh, like, obviously, good coaching and early player identification can get players to a certain level, but having the world-class players that we had in 88 and 1990... Well, well it, it's difficult for... See, people say with international managers, you know, what, what, uh, about producing players. 
international managers actually can't produce pl players. They're dependent on the club to produce the players, and then you pick them. So the players that came from to, to at our uh, international team in '88 and '90 uh, were from Liverpool and Manchester United. They produced them, um, but the players had to be there in the first place. And the Irish players obviously were there. The, the lads who qualified for us that hadn't qualified for us before were there. So it's a combination of a lot of different things that led to those players being there. But they're not. The, the, the manager of the international team can't produce the players. He can only pick the players that the clubs produce. Yeah, there, there is an argument that um, with the Premier League and the amount of money that those clubs have now, the fact that they can scout in Africa, Brazil, Argentina, and the rest of Europe means that it's less likely that Irish players are going to play at the top level. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they won't be world-class if they get the right coaching and the right breaks along the way. Well, I think, I, I, I think it's um, what's happened in, in England with the English clubs. Uh, they're criticised a lot for going to, going to foreign players. But from what I know the situation, the English clubs are delighted to have homegrown players. I think the fact is that there are less homegrown players. I'm talking about homegrown from England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. Uh, gone into it. I think there are less players coming into the game than there were, like, say, even 15, 20, 25, 30 years ago. For one reason or another, I think. Yeah. Will the best players still make it through, do you think? Definitely. Yeah. I think the, the, the English clubs, all the big English would rather sign local players than going abroad and, and spend a lot of money on them. But the fact is that they, they have to do that to compete and the, the, the foreign players are better value at the moment than the homegrown players. One of the things, I'm glad you mentioned the centre-backs because I wanted to ask you about the midfielders and you didn't steal my line about it, so I'm glad about that. Um, we were looking at the, the incredible midfielders we've had over the last 25 years. There's a, a bunch who are at the very top class, obviously Roy Keane, Liam Brady, uh, Ronnie Whelan, and I don't know if, if Paul McGrath gets included there because he played most of uh, the qualifying campaign for 88 as a midfielder. That's the very top tier. After that, there's a tier which includes John Sheridan, Andy Townsend, Ray Houghton, Jason McAteer... He's, he's shaking his head there. <laughs> he's saying he's in the top tier. Uh, we have been pretty fortunate about midfield players over the last. Well, I think that, like, <laughs> Jason was there, all right. We'll give him, give him full credit that, for that, yeah. Because <laughs> I want him to buy me a drink afterwards, you know. And, and, but, uh, like, if you look at the, the, the whole, uh, like, whether it be England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales again, how many midfield players do you see produced nowadays? Like Wiltshire is, is, the, is the outstanding player of the young players. But there are very, very uh, few midfield players being produced from England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. That's just a fact. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, 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 I mean, my, my, my theory on it, my theory on it is that there's the, the you know, I don't want to be too long-winded about it, but I think years ago, the, uh, the culture of the coach became more important than the players, the likes of Malcolm Allison and, and uh, various other people at, at that time. And I think that then uh, fed down to the lower regions where the coaches of the school by teams became more important than the kids that they were coaching. Uh, not all of them, but a lot of them. And I think the under 10 coach, for example, um, became very, very concerned about being a winning coach and the, I think the kids suffered then because in, when I was a kid, we had an old man called Tom Tony. He used to take the team, let us play. And if you made a mistake, he didn't worry about it too much. If you didn't win the match, he didn't worry about it too much. Yeah. And you'll find creative kids will make more mistakes than the non-creative kids. And they're usually the smaller guys. Uh, so I think if they made a couple of mistakes, the coach, a lot of the coaches say, right, off, get a big fella on and they'd win the match and they'd go on and win the league. Uh, and he'd be the successful coach 
But by the time the creative kids got to 13, 14, 15, they were disillusioned with the game and actually stopped playing. Yeah. That's my theory on the non-creative kids, or midfield players, that we had in the past and today. You would trace that back to the, the managers becoming so important and so celebrated by the media, maybe? Or even yeah. in their own minds as well? Well, in their own minds and the media, and therefore the coaches who went and got their badges had to be a winning coach rather than looking after the kids and, and, and encouraging the kids that if they made a mistake, you know, to teach them, well, don't worry about it, try it again, and it'll, it'll, it'll be okay. So I think that's the, the, the coaches became winning coaches in their heads rather than producing the kids to play. That, that, that culture that produced you, that you had, what was his name, Tom Tunney? Yeah. yeah. He wasn't actually a coach. He was just a, like in those days, they didn't have the coaching badges when I, when I played. It was just men who loved football, bringing the kids out and, and did it for the sake of the kids, for the kids to go and enjoy themselves. And that's what I grew up with. Yeah. So I was allowed to express myself in the match. I, if I made a mistake, they, they, they didn't say, right, off you go. Well, there was no subs in those days anyway, going back a long time. <laughs> but it was the, 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 the people that brought the teams out did it for the sake of the kids, not for themselves. Yeah, and, and at some point that changes and the philosophy becomes to get the athletes in yep. as opposed to players well, who take touches. Well, the, 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 the coach badge, the coaching badge then came into existence. So uh, anybody who goes to Lillishaw, uh, who mightn't have known too much about football, passed their coaching badge and all, all, all of a sudden they're an expert and they want to be a winning coach. So uh, that, that's what I think was, was, that was a big change in it. Certainly now you hear a lot of people talking about trying to get back to that situation where it's not all about, they're trying to remove competitive games from I think under 12 or under 13 yeah. in England. I, I guess that's something that you think was actually a really good thing for football. Well, I think it's a good thing for football if it takes the, the, the coach's credit from w producing a winning team out of it. Uh, if it's, if if it's non-competitive in that way, I think it's a good move because all kids that my experience in my time and almost that I see, Kids naturally want to win matches. Yeah. You don't have to give them an incentive to win matches. It's the coaches that were getting the credit for producing the winning team rather than the kids. And the coach was the influence. That's, that's why the, 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 the non-competitiveness now might eliminate the coach's influence. Ever since I've been a kid, I've watched uh, teams, generally they would be English teams, but equally whenever an Irish team makes it into European competition and invariably the commentator trots out the oh, they're much more technically gifted in the generally Eastern European, Central European, and, and Italy and Spain, everybody basically, apart from England, <laughs> was pretty much... Uh, and does that all come from the same thing, where it's actually, we don't really prize technical ability, we prize... Well, if you, if you look at Spain, Spain are the, are the example at the moment. Uh, and whatever way they've produced their players, then they should be copied. You know, you've got uh, Iniesta, you've got Xavi, you've got Fabregas, you've got Silva. Uh, the lad has just joined Arsenal, Colusi. Catorla, yeah. These are all Silva. These are all terrific midfield players. And there's about eight of them. There's only one in England that's likely to do it, which is Wilshire. Yeah. So whatever way they've been doing it, which is concentration on skill uh, and ability and, and creativeness, that's the way to follow it. I don't know how they've done it, but they've certainly done it. From the Irish midfielders over the last um, 25 years, is it, they're, they're kind of different. Roy Keane is not the same type of player as Liam Brady, and yet if you could put them in the dream team, they would work very well together, it seems. Well, Keane was great for different reasons. You know, all players are not great just because they're creative. Uh, Roy Keane was great, in my opinion, because of his attitude to the game, and he was at his best, actually, when the team uh, were up against it most. Um, I think when the team was winning 3-0, for example, uh, Roy Keane's presence wouldn't have been anywhere near as influential, influential 
that's when they were a goal down. Um, Roy Keane was at his best when the team were up against it and he had to drive players, he had to drive himself. Uh, it, I mean, he wasn't a creative player in that sense. But, you know, a lot of players can be great. In, in my opinion, Keane was great uh, because of all the things that he did. You know, he, was, he, he covered the ground. When the other team had the ball, he was great. He urged people along. He didn't stand any nonsense. And I think he all, whatever he did, Keane, in the team, I think he did for the benefit of the team. He didn't do it for himself. So I think that's what made him a great player. Now, a lot of people would be, would, would be critical of Roy Keane in many other ways. I don't know him very well. I find him very a contradiction, a lot of contradictions in his, in his attitude and things over the years. So I don't, but I don't know him. But as a player, I think he was great for those reasons. The lads are nodding away there. Phil, Phil and well, Jason. Phil, like, Phil, yeah, yeah, yeah. I asked Jason and, and, and Phil about them, uh, them later on because they know him and know him very, very well. I'm only looking from... The, <laughs> <laughs> the lads are nodding their head. They don't know him very well. I don't think anybody knows Roy Keane very well. But he, they, they played alongside him, so they, they would have a better... I'm only take, uh, that's my take on him looking from a distance, uh, you know, just looking at him playing. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, again, I often describe Keane, if I was going... Uh, the way you can judge a lot of players, if you go to, say, Argentina, a very, very rough place in Argentina, and you had to pick a team to win the match for your life, I would pick... Well, my first pick would be Roy Keane to go on that trip. Would Liam Brady make that trip? Yeah, well... well, um, he, he, well, <laughs> well, Liam is a great pal of mine and he's a terrific player. The, 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 there's so many great players that you'd have to do that. Like, Graeme Souness would come into. It into, into mind and, 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 and lots, of, lots of other players who, would, who wouldn't have had a great reputation yeah. as being tough, tough players. But if you're saying, that's my life depends on that match, certainly Roy Keane would be in, would be in that team. Uh, one of the things I did want to ask about Liam Brady was what kind of player was he? Because obviously um, most of the people in the room probably haven't actually seen him play in 90 minutes. Uh, I was at the Brazil game, uh, but I was 11, so I kind of, you know, I remember the goal. And I remember yeah. people standing up in front of me, and that's kind of all I remember. Yeah, Liam was a beautiful player, a beautiful player. And a lot of people wouldn't remember Liam, because Liam spent the best part of his career in Italy. His great years were in Italy, because he went away when he was very young. I think he was only 21, 22 when he went to uh, Juventus. And I think, he, whatever, he had eight, ten years. So Liam had his best years, and well, we didn't see that much of him. Um, I, I mean, I, I, Liam, I was player manager when Liam made his debut against when we played the USSR. And we had a great win three. And Liam was just a natural player. You could give the ball to Liam in any tight situation. And he had this great control and great movement. It looked, it looked a little bit lazy at times, but he could have this change of pace to go past people. And he could go past br people brilliantly in a, a lovely left foot. Like when you see a lot of midfield players now, they don't go past anybody. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Carrick playing for Manchester United, for example, he has to pass the ball in the position he receives it. He never goes past anybody, so he doesn't threaten the opposition in that way. Whereas Liam could do that and he could go past him. Great left foot, he could get score a fair, fair few goals. Liam was a terrific player and a, and, and a very, very enjoyable player to play alongside. Is that, is that a, a bit like um, Wilshire as well? Are they... Like, Wilshire, well, Wilshire has to get to there, get to that position, yeah. Wilshire would be would be uh, maybe quicker than Liam, he, he, he might win the ball better, but he's a long way to go. I think he's the most promising player, uh, Wiltshire, but he's a bit to go yet to, to, to get to that class. Yeah. Uh, the, the, is Liam a player who comes through that Irish culture where you're allowed to make mistakes yeah, and it's fine and so. it's exactly the same thing? I think so. And, and yeah. that couldn't really happen now at the moment? Well, well, don't get me wrong, Jared. There are some good lads out there coaching who do let the players play, but unfortunately there are too many who don't do that. 
Uh, I mean, these are players, people who do dedicate themselves to the game. I think a lot of them believe they're doing the right thing. Um, but there are, there are good lads out there who do let the players play. But there, there are some, there are more than I, I think is healthy who don't do that. Yeah. Uh, the, that whole um, sense of wanting to be on the ball and having responsibility for, for stuff, does that come from when you were a kid? Like, yeah, but, but players, like, don't we get, when, when kids start playing football for us, they don't know anything about coaching, right? So they do what's natural to them. And the natural kids will show better than they have the ability than the kids who haven't. Yeah. So all you've got to do is most of the time, let them develop in that particular way. Don't try and coach them too much. You know, coach them in the right way, but just let them do their natural thing. We talk a lot about um, philosophy of the game and uh, you can tell from individual coaches exactly what it is that they want their team to do if you watch them over a long period of time. And we've talked about it for years, actually. At what point did you decide this is my philosophy and this is how I believe the game should be played? Did that evolve over a period of time or was it yeah, like... Well, it evolves over a period of time because when you, when you start playing, you don't... Uh, you're young. I remember mean, I was very young when I started playing uh, football. So you just play in a natural way. You know, I went to Manchester United when I was 15. So you start learning a bit about it now. Jimmy Murphy was a big influence. But I was, I'd say I was about... 27, 28. That old, yeah. Yeah, when I was able to do most of the things that I wanted to do for 90 minutes. And then you're, 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 you get older and, and hopefully you get better. And when it, you're doing in that. your head the whole time, it's like I'm doing these for a reason as opposed yeah. to... Yeah, well, the, the older you get, then the more... The, see, the more games you play, I think you should learn from every game you play. So the more games you play, the better you should get. So by the time you get 28, 29, you've played quite a few matches. So you should... Be, that's provided you keep your fitness of course, that you should be a better player at 28, 29 than you were when you were 19. In terms of that, that belief system, though, like that the right thing to do, is, is Matt Busby an influence more than any other... Like, you mentioned Jimmy Murphy. Is, is he more important than I think the game should be played with the ball, with the central midfielder doing the tracking and being the most important player? Well, he, he always... But so did Matt Busby. I mean, one of the great things about Matt Busby was that he did allow the players to play. I mean, if you were winning... 1-0 with Manchester United and you tried to do something creative and you lost it and you lost the goal, he wouldn't get on to you about it. He said that was the right thing to do and you continued to do it again. So he took the fear uh, out of the players uh, in Matt Busby. Jim Murphy, Jimmy Murphy was the player who dealt with the young lads and coached them. And when they were ready for the first team, he'd tell Matt Busby and then Matt Busby would take over from there. Yeah. And is that a, an easy enough process to go from being 17, 18, and, and then suddenly playing football well, with... Well, it was, it was unusual at Manchester United because Manchester United, when I went there, was, it was pre-Munich. Uh, they had the pick of Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales of young players, and there was a conveyor belt of talent that was absolutely incredible at Manchester United. Uh, they had 60 pros, and they they'd some outstanding players. So it was a survival of the fittest, really, to be honest, Chair. Uh, you know, you didn't get that much individual coaching, uh, but they could afford to do that because... They had so many... That so many and, and tough guys and the people who wanted to do it would come to the fore. Yeah, and yet at the same time, you, you managed to survive this and, and still be a creative player at Manchester United. Oh, yeah. Well, well, they, well, they, well they encourage creative players all the time. All the time. Uh, Am I boring you now? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think this is amazing stuff. Brady, best midfielder of his era, best midfielder of his era better than Platini, says a texter on 53106. Uh, he got replaced by Platini at um, Juventus in the end, Liam did. Yeah, well, I think that was Mr. Trapattoni did that. Yeah. Um, and that's, no, that's fair enough because... <laughs> and still, and still that's why friends. I wonder why Liam defends him so much, you know? <laughs> but, uh, 
uh, like that was his decision. Like Liam, Liam had actually won the championship uh, in for two years uh, before he before he signed Platini instead of uh, Liam. Yeah, could they have played together? Would that be possible? I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think they could. Yeah. All right, we've got loads of questions for John. We've got. Uh We've got Joe in the crowd. Joe, I think you found somebody to, to ask a question of, of John Giles. Yeah, Jerry, I'm here with uh, some Scottish bloke called Graham. <laughs> Graham, firehead. Not like me to put my nose in. John, when, when I was growing up, the first two English teams I was ever aware of were, were Leeds and Chelsea, and there's obvious reasons why. But the guy who I idolise and who I think would fit into any team these days, and I live and work in Spain, he's got the same skills as anybody in Barcelona. Really. Was Eddie Gray, have I got that wrong? Was Eddie Gray just one magnificent talent and, and why yeah. was it that he's not recognised as that now? Uh, well Eddie first of all was, was a great talent and I think he was a terrific player. He was a little bit unlucky uh, Graham that when he was about 15-16 at Leeds United he got a bad injury to uh, a thigh muscle and he played before he should have played and it calcified. So he always had problems. Eddie was never 100% fit to do what needed to be done and he was still a terrific player so that's how, how good he was. But he was a natural footballer uh, and the, he played with the Leeds United team that was very, very successful. But at that time, you had Georgie Best around. You had a lot of players around who were terrifically, uh, terrific players and individual players. So Eddie would have been overshadowed a little bit, first of all by his injury, which, which uh, curtailed his appearances, but also with the likes of Georgie Best and, and Charlie Cook and all, of, all these terrific players. But he was up there. I thought Eddie was a terrific player. Charlie about him. Sorry? Did he, a, did he have a touch of Charlie Cook and George Best about him? Was he well, at the level when he played it? Well, he would be more like Charlie Cook than Georgie. You know, nobody could compare with Georgie. Georgie, Georgie Best was, was uh, a phenomenon. A phenomenon. Uh, in, he was the most talented player I've ever seen. Um, now, that doesn't mean he was the best player I've ever seen because Georgie finished, he didn't look after himself and he was finished when he was very, very young. But to do the, the, Georgie had, was unique in his talent in that when he was going down the left wing, he could get balanced onto his right foot to go left side and he could go left side onto his right side. I've never seen anybody do that before. And he was very brave. Um, he was very, very, very quick. Uh, George Bush was, was the best talent I've ever seen. Unfortunately, he, he didn't make the best use of that talent for various reasons. But he was, he was, he was a terrific player. Uh, John, I've got, got a tweet here. Ask John about Ormond Square football. I don't know if you know that obviously you, there's a, a plaque that uh, you were there for the unveiling of. Yeah, I put it up myself. <laughs> did, did, did you know that there's... That's a joke. <laughs> did, did, did you know there's now a sign up beside it saying, or very close to it saying, no ball games? I didn't see that. It's new. It was, it's it, new it, since. Is it? Well, it's, it, Norman Square has changed a lot from my day. I was brought up in the 40s and early 50s in Norman Square, and it was a very, very working-class area. Uh, I think it's a bit of a yuppie area now. Uh, <laughs> things have changed quite a bit. There's a lot of legal people bought places on very near the court, forecourt. But when I was a kid, it, it was a square, obviously, and there was no traffic going through. So it was an ideal situation or position for players like, kids like myself there was no television, there was no distractions, you just went out and played from morning to night. So it was an ideal way of learning your trade uh, in football without thinking you're learning your trade. It was just enjoyment yeah. in what we were doing. That's obviously totally gone now for, for all footballers around the world. And you couldn't play around the square now. Actually, you can play inside the square now. Although no ball games is the sign, apparently. Yeah, well, so. well, they'd have to play different games, Joe, yeah. Yeah, we... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Joe, back in the crowd. Yeah, Jerry, I'm here with uh, Miles from Stillorgan. He's got a question for John. 
Yeah, John, who would you like to see in as the next Irish manager? Or maybe are you ready to come back out of retirement yourself? No, well, I won't be getting out of retirement, no. I'm well retired. Uh, the next manager, it's... I was talking to somebody earlier before the programme, and I would hate to be in a position to pick a successful manager for the Irish team, or any team, if my life depended on it. Because there's so many uh, things that can go wrong or go right. Um, I mean, the, the, the people that will be in, I think, uh, uh, Owen Coyle could be, in, could be is, I think McDermott's going to Leeds, is that right? Yeah, it looks like you know? today, yeah. Now, whether they could do it on a part-time, I think it could be done on a part-time basis. But I think that they would, they would be two of the obvious choices. Maybe Martin O'Neill, if he's not uh, in employment, I think would be, would be a terrific choice. Uh, by the way, I think Martin has been very, very unfairly treated by the situation by, by Can De Canio and the, the Sunderland uh, thing. But that's, that's another day's work. But I think Martin would be uh, a good choice for it. Yeah, the, the difficulty of finding the right person for the, the job, should it always only be a two-year term, go from qualifying campaign to qualifying campaign? Or do you say, look, this is the guy that we're going to make this be the person who's responsible for the next four seasons? Um, well, that hasn't happened in, with the Irish team. And if you look at Trapattoni, I mean, I, I think Trapattoni's been involved with the first team. I don't think he's been involved in any other uh, area in, in the, the progression of Irish players. Yeah. Uh, and I wouldn't be against that either because the, the international manager has enough on his plate to, to produce a winning team. And producing a winning team at the highest level is the most important thing of the lot. Um, but I think that the, if, 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 if you think you're getting the right man, the right man not, might, might not say, well, I won't do to you, I want three years. You know, but I think the two-year thing is good. It's, it's certainly it, it's, it's enough time for the manager to show what he can do if he's going to qualify or if the team is progressing. Yeah. Should the international manager have more of an influence on the rest of the game or is it actually better to keep it totally separate? I, I think the international manager should be in charge, if not himself, of... Uh, employing somebody at under 21 level, 60, youth level, 16 level, because they're the players that, that hopefully will come on to the international team. And I think it should be right to have, to have a, a, a program or a style of play, as they call it, coming from the 16s to the 18s, rather than getting in a different style of play to come to the full team and then there's a big change. Yeah. I think that there should be more influence in that particular way. It seems to be very difficult to, to do that, though. It, well, it, you can like employ somebody to do it. it. It is difficult because it's very, get, very difficult to get somebody that has the same philosophy on the game as you do. Everybody's different philosophies on the game. So to appoint somebody that you can really trust to do what needs to be done would be very, very difficult. Uh, that follow-through from the style of play, is it an ideal situation or only? Like, or is it actually something that can happen in practicalities, you know, that the... I think it's very difficult. I think it can happen. Like the, the under-18 coach or the under-19 coach, they, they want to win. And if they're being told, you know, you've got to play. Like there's well, that's up to the manager and who he employs. You know, to, to get somebody to do what, what he wants them to do could be difficult. Yeah. Um, but I that would be the ideal situation. I'm thinking think. of the famous story where um, Liam Toohey was in charge, I think, of the under-21s. Certainly one of the underage teams. Yeah. And, and half-time, they're losing... And Jack Charlton burst in and goes, what are you doing playing like this? This isn't how I play. You've got to change it. And well, Liam was they like... Must, they must have been passing the ball to each other at that particular time. <laughs> but I could imagine Jack doing that, yeah. yeah. But at the same time, he didn't employ anybody to do it the way he wanted to do it. You know? Yeah, so ultimately that responsibility ends up... Jack wasn't... I don't think Jack was interested in the, in the under-21s or the under-18s. And Jack was only interested in the, in the first team and, and how, it, how it affected him. Yeah, one final point on this before we leave it. The uh, point about it being a possible 
job for a part-time manager, it doesn't look good. Like the optics of it are very difficult for everybody to explain to yeah. sponsors and to the media who are kind of like, oh, you know, you, you, you might have missed this under-19 guy. But ultimately, it's true, isn't it? That you could actually do the international management of a team. And maybe it might be better if you had another job. You might not remember, I actually did it. <laughs> I was player manager. This is the time when the FA had no money. And they asked me to do it, and I was reluctant to do it. But I was playing for Leeds at the time. So it, I think it can be done, because you only meet the international players every so often. You know, there's only so many matches in the year. And it's those few days that you have together that are important. And if you're involved in the game, you should know the players anyway. Um, but as you say, it doesn't look good because you think, well, it should be. But you've seen the matches, you've enough time to go. And I think it could be done if you, if you got the right man. Would the barrier be on the club side where they're thinking, hang on a second, you've got like three days well, here. Why is he not scouting players? Well, well when, when I was the player manager, I was actually playing player manager at West Brom at the same time. And uh, I put it to them as a, a plus rather than a minus. Yeah. Because I was actually dealing with international players um, that I had obviously close contact with. To, to bring to West Brom if they wanted to come to West Brom and certainly to assess players as we went along. Do the other managers of other clubs think that you're tapping up their players on international duty? I don't, well, I don't know. Actually, I brought uh, Mick Martin who, at the time uh, to, to West Brom, Paddy Mulligan, who played in the international, Ray Tracy. Yeah, um, so you now, were tapping them up. <laughs> well, I didn't have to tap them up very much because Paddy was on a free transfer and Ray Tracy was on a free transfer, so I didn't have to pay a lot of money for okay. them. Yeah. yeah. All right, we've got one more question from the crowd for John. Yeah, Jerry, last question. I'm here with Frank from Dublin. Firehead Frank. Hi. I like that, Sean. With, when Trapattoni came, he seemed to have brought a different philosophy from, from the continent. Whereas under Charlton, the players who came to Dublin would really look forward to it and having, having great crack when they came to, came to Dublin. Uh, it seemed that he's imposed a good bit more discipline. And do you think that that suits the Irish temperament? Because we had great results. When they, the players, when they came to Dublin, could the first night or two could enjoy themselves, have a drink, and stay out late. But apparently, that's all changed now. And do you think that uh, Trapattoni's style suits our character? We're seeing some raised eyebrows from the lads yeah. about that. It hasn't well, changed that much. All, all I would say is that uh, um, the fact that the Irish players could have a drink and do what they well, what they needed to do at a particular time, um, actually, wouldn't be the reason why they were successful in relation to Trapattoni's attitude with the players he had today. The reason that Jack's team was successful was because they had terrific players. And I think they definitely had much better players at, at Jack at his disposal than the manager has today. So I wouldn't, if I were critical of the manager today, it wouldn't be for not letting the lads stay out late, uh, but what happens on the pitch. Um, so I wouldn't relate uh, the, the attitude of off the pitch um, to on the pitch in relation to Jack's success and Trapattoni's comparative lack of success. We tend to equate drinking with success for some reason in this country. I know. Listen, it might be a problem for us. Like, I, well, I, was, I played in the Irish team for a long time and I was managing the Irish team in a long time when we had players who did drink a lot, Chair. And I had no problem with the players. And there was a certain camaraderie and spirit with the players when we got together. We used to get together on a Sunday night and I would let the players have a few drinks on Sunday night, but no more drink until after the match on, on the Wednesday. I didn't see anything wrong with that. As long as it, I don't, from what I know of Jack's side, I don't think the lads like, like the, the Phil and, and, and Jason here went out drinking the night before the match. I think there was a discipline about it in, in <laughs> I don't think so anyway. <laughs> certainly these two lads wouldn't, you know, but uh, I don't think that happened. But they certainly would have a good time after the match and you're entitled to do that. Yeah. So I don't think there was this uh, loose, 
uh, discipline in the time when we were doing that well with the Irish team at all. Yeah. I don't believe that. All right, on that note, give it up for John Giles. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.